The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. A little more than a hundred years ago, philosophy in the English-speaking world was transformed by the arrival of what has come to be known as analytic philosophy. Focusing on logic and the meaning of words, analytic philosophy sought to put philosophy on a scientific footing. Yet, a century on, critics argue that the focus on language and the aping of science is out of sync with the contemporary environment. So, is it time for the English-speaking world to move on from analytic philosophy? Or can it be revived by applying its focus on rationality and the logic of words to the divisive and emotional disputes that beset current culture? Joining us to debate whether philosophy's fixation on language has held us back, our distinguished philosopher of language and the senses, Barry Smith, Wittgenstein expert, Maria Balaska, and maverick post-postmodern philosopher, Hilary Lawson. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Rufus Ditz. Is it time to move on from analytic philosophy? So we'll start with Maria Belasca. Thank you. Well, I think we are already moving on, and there are important shifts happening, and this is part of the point I want to make today. But I think there's also something interesting about the question, because there's an assumption there that we should move on, which further implies that there's an assumption that there's something wrong about analytic philosophy. And I'd like to explore a bit what, that, what's, what is wrong with it. And to my surprise, when I was preparing for this debate, I thought to myself, what, what is actually analytic philosophy? Because it was not clear to me. And then I tried to think of what the distinctive traits of analytic philosophy are. And I thought of an emphasis on language. There is famously a philosopher called Richard Rorty in 1967 brought together an anthology of texts and used the term linguistic turn as a title. And so the linguistic turn is something that, as the title of the debate, Lost in Language, suggests is important for defining analytic philosophy. But then I thought that's not only it, because in, continent, in the so-called continental tradition, around the same time, you also have an emphasis on language. So in general, philosophy is kind of moving towards language at that time. So then I thought, what else is there? And I thought of a focus perhaps on formal logic and mathematics, or a focus on natural sciences. And I think it depends on how these three things hang together, the emphasis on language, the emphasis on formal logic, and the emphasis on natural sciences, that has given us different versions of analytic philosophy, some better, some worse. One of the problematic ones has been logical positivism, where you get a very strong and kind of extreme link between language, formal logic, and 
uh, natural science and where meaningful language has to be either kind of logical propositions or empirical propositions. But we have moved on from logical positivism, for example. So I think it's a complex well, picture and it depends on where it. we're kind of looking at. Okay, thank you very much. Hillary? Metaphysics. So I, I grew up philosophically in, uh, in Oxford religious folk and, uh, and Oxford uh, to focus on facts and analytic and philosophy. That, uh, what analytic and philosophy at the time was when I uh, arrived, as as I was read concerned was about clearing the ground so that science could get on with discovering uh, the facts of the matter. And I employed these arguments, no doubt, with my teachers in a very irritating way uh, at school. And as I say, I was inspired by it. But um, when I be actually became and, st uh, uh, and studied uh, philosophy, I came to the view that the initial project was flawed and was flawed because the notion that we can uh, define our words accurately and clear up philosophical problems is, I think, also based on an understanding of the relationship between language and the world that Russell and Wittgenstein, who uh, were involved in, in framing their initial idea of what analytic philosophy was. And I don't think it's possible to produce a uh, realist theory of language, and I don't think it's possible for logical grounds. And in fact, Wittgenstein, very shortly after the initiation of what might be thought analytic philosophy, I think in the Tractatus demonstrated its internal incoherence. That hasn't stopped the momentum behind analytic philosophy, and in large part, I think his conclusions have been ignored in some way or reinterpreted, so it's possible to maintain the notion that analytic philosophy can move forward in a piecemeal, scientific way, gradually clear up some problems. Facing uh, criticism that analytic philosophy is out of touch, and, and talking about the definitions of words, I think it's not unusual for analytic philosophers, and, and Maria pointed to this to some degree, was that um, to say, oh, well, analytic philosophy has moved on from uh, the Russellian project. He, he founded a thing called the philosophy of logical analysis, so you can see the direct parallel there with the analytic philosophy. It's moved on, and it's now quite a broad church, lots of different views. Well, perhaps. Uh, it's still the case, for example, again, I'll take o Oxford as an example, it's the largest uh, philosophy department in Britain by some way, and I think most people would agree that the most significant philosophical movement in the world, in the Western world, at any rate, as a whole in the last 50 years, has been postmodernism. It's radically changed most of the d many departments, social sciences and so forth. Uh, it has become part of culture. It's been central in the current debate about fake truth and alternative perspectives. It's been an absolutely huge thing. I am a critic of Derrida. Uh, who is perhaps the core theoretician of, of post-structuralist, post-modernism. But at no point in the last 50 years, at no point has there been a single person within the philosophy department at Oxford who has taught Derrida or post-modernism. Not one. And uh, as a student, if you go to Oxford, you learn nothing about it. And that, for most students, is rather bizarre, you know, because the culture has been embedded in this conversation about postmodernism. So the idea that an analytic philosophy is a broad church, I think we have to take with a bit of a pinch of salt. Now, instead, I, I think that there's nothing wrong with trying to define the meanings of words. We should be precise in our use of language. But I think the idea 
that we can come to a correct set of meanings about language, which is how a lot of analytic philosophy works, that, oh, we're going to take any particular topic, we try and divide it into, there are four types of these different things, and there's this one and this one, and this is how you use it, and that's it, I think is a mistake. I don't think we can define our meanings of words in a way that any of us can agree. And there isn't uh, a, an objective way of dividing up concepts. And it can be valuable to focus on language and the way that we use words. But I don't think we can use that as a tool to answer the big philosophical question. I think philosophy should return to trying to provide overall stories about the world which are coherent and applicable to the current uh, environment. Thank you very much. Okay, Barry. So I, I, I want to try to dispel the idea that when we talk about analytic philosophy, we just look at the tools and the techniques, because it, it can look pretty dry and it can look pretty dull. Um, I mean, one view of analytic philosophy is breeding hairs to split them. You know, that, that what we do is we just find all these little puzzles. And Hillary's right that, you know, and I, I won't tread on other people's grief. Oxford may have its own sort of conception and rather rigorous conception of what it thinks counts as philosophy. What I wanted to try and remind you of, and, and Maria was alluding to this, was some of the original excitement and the kind of bold drive of analytic philosophy. And I, I, I go back to, not to Ayer, but to Frege, Gottlob Frege, mathematician who wanted to know what is mathematics about? So, so, you know, the usual philosophical question is, we're uncertain, can we know anything about the world or about other minds and so on? In the case of mathematics, we know a lot. We're very sure, very certain about mathematical truth, but what are the truths about? What is the subject matter of mathematics? And Frege had the idea that um, he was going to use a certain sort of technique to get at this. He thought it was a disgrace that when we were talking about the number one, we couldn't even say what it was. If you ask people, what's the number one? They'd say, a thing. That's not even a, a definite, that's an indefinite description. So he insisted if we're going to do this properly, we need a language that's fit to do mathematics. So we need clarity, rigor, sharp definition of concepts in order to have a logically precise language to do maths. Now, what he actually thought mathematics was about, amazingly, he thought it was about an abstract realm independent of human thought not in space and time, no causal connection to us. And that truths of mathematics, like you know, seven and five is 12, are true about how things stand in that realm. And if they were true, they were always true, eternally. And now the question is, how could we, human beings in our culture, with our you know, time and space, how could we ever have access to that mathematical realm? And the answer was to make proofs about it, to have proof as a language, a special logical language, to try to articulate how things stand in that realm. Now that's, that's an incredibly ambitious thing. And he also had other morals for analytic, what became analytic philosophy. He thought we should separate the thinker from the thought. We don't get obsessed by who thought that, it's my theory, or what did I read before, or who was I influenced by? No, whoever spoke it, student, professor, whoever it was, was what they were saying true? Could we justify what they were saying on, on good grounds? Could we give arguments and reasons for saying that that thought is true? And what's more, he, he took it that thoughts existed in this abstract realm. Thoughts were not in your head. Thoughts were outside the mind. And, and there was an array. Imagine an array of all the thoughts that could be thunk 
as it were. And they all stand in beautiful relations to each other and every philosophical view there is, is in there. Now we are historical beings, so we have to discover them in certain orders. But in some sense, there's nothing essentially historical about them, they're all there. And he then took it that our job was to be logical geographers. We discover rather than create some of these ways of thinking. And in a way, philosophers, when they're working, and Hillary will know this, Maria will know this, Rufus will know this, when you're working and you're trying to get something right, you have a feeling of uh, it's not coming because it won't allow me to say it. it. Rather like the way sculptors talk about when they're carving marble, it will or won't allow a form. And that feeling of reaching for the form, that was a very ambitious way of rethinking what philosophy was doing from a mathematician. But remember, he was trying to find a language precise enough to talk about maths, not to talk about the world. He didn't think loose, ordinary language did a very good job, so there was a, a rigorous reformulation of language. Russell carried on that project, Wittgenstein carried it on in the Tractatus, and as Hillary said, to the point of undermining its, its own pretensions. But the other thing Marie alluded to, imagine the, the excitement in the 30s of logical positivists. What they thought was science is making tremendous advances. Physics was now throwing out lots of things we thought. Einstein was revolutionizing our way of thinking about the world, but philosophy had made no progress. It needed to have a program. It needed to have something that was, you know, going to make it fit to kind of contribute to this new world of discovery. And so why they were concerned with language in the positivist tradition was because they thought, have we got the language that can describe theories and, and parts of the world accurately? So investigating the tools for constructing theories for even doing philosophy was part of the project. So we gave up having a critique of reason and we started having a critique of language, the tools in which we express our thought. Thank you very much. So at least one thing I've taken from that is that perhaps analytic philosophy is not straightforward to define. I mean, in one sense, it seems from what you've said, it's a research project, and in another sense, it's a series of questions, a sort of a research methodology, and in one sense, it's a research project. So I want to hone in on the idea that it's a research project and that it began with certain questions that maybe um, you've articulated already and ask a further question, which is whether it succeeded in answering the early core questions with which it began. So Maria, would you mind if we start with you on yeah, that? Yeah, so yeah. Has the, our first theme is, has analytic philosophy actually been able to address the core questions with which it began? Well, like we've been discussing, I think it depends on what, what these core questions or aims were. Because uh, if, if we take the core question or aim to be, let's see how philosophical problems can be a case of confusion and drawing the right distinctions between the different logical roles that a word can have can help us avoid some pseudo problems, then I think it has succeeded because it has been helpful in, in making us kind of see that and work on that. Now, as Barry was saying, there was also a project of kind of moving away from ordinary language and building an ideal language. And then that depends on what the aims were for that. So as you said, like Frege, the Begriffsschrift, uh, concept notation, like a, an ideal language that we could use, philosophers could use to avoid all these confusions that get us to all the problems. Um, but then also that went too far because with Carnap and logical positivism, you have the idea that for language to be meaningful at all, you must either have propositions that are kind of verifiable empirically or logical propositions and all other areas just disappear. 
So think of what that would mean for areas like ethics, aesthetics. And it's not just areas, it's all like aspects of our lives because the concept of the good, for example, it's not just when we, when we talk about ethics, but think of how it permeates our, our life as a whole. So if that was the, the aim, I think to some extent it failed and it, it, it couldn't but fail. But again, uh, there was the mention of, of Wittgenstein and especially the later, like then you have the transition that meaning is, is not just something atemporal or historical, but you also have to look at the use. So the interesting thing is, how do you keep both? How do you keep, you know, as you say, the excitement and I think it's a very philosophical, like it's a very platonic thing too, of, of trying to look at something clearly, undisturbed from all sorts of things that can disturb you. But on the other hand also, how can you take into account history and the fact that you are you know, situated in space and time? So given the complexity, if we then take the, one of the core questions to be, how does ordinary language fit in? So not just an ideal language, but how does ordinary language fit in um, the way we do philosophy, how can we take that into account in a way that is helpful? I think that's also a core question, and I think this is still being explored, and it's a good question. So the jury's still out on some of the There's questions yeah. in any case. Thank you very much. Um, Hilary, you've been quite clear that it does not succeed. Perhaps you could say a little bit more about what you took the, the key question to be and exactly why you think it fails. Well, as I say, I, I was enthusiastic about it as a young student for all of the reasons that <coughs> Barry described. It was in the 1910s and 20s and 30s. It was a dynamic new uh, brush through what had become a rather impenetrable Hegelianism, which had dominated a lot of philosophy. Um, so that was very exciting. But that was 110 years ago. And during that time, there have been both the initial flaw, which Wittgenstein identified very early on, and uh, there have been attempts to carry on the project in one form or another, because it's a very attractive thing. You know, philosophers like this, oh, we'll turn philosophy into a science. You know, science gets all of the accolades, and we want to m no longer be in a space where we're just wandering around between different different views. We'd like to make slow, piecemeal progress like science. So it's, it's got a great sort of vision to it. The, the, the trouble is that it, it just hasn't functioned like that. And it, I think it doesn't function like that because the, the core analytic project as set out, and I think Russell is, you know, he was the person who started using the word logical analysis. And he does have an overall philosophy. Uh, he was a brilliant mathematician. He, he provided a logical frame for mathematics along with Whitehead. And he thought you could then apply it to language. And there was nothing wrong with that vision. It was a very exciting vision. It was just, I think, mistaken that uh, you can't just apply uh, logic and mathematics to uh, language because that's the relationship between language in the world is not the same as the relationship between mathematics and its proofs. And, and I think the history of analytic philosophy, people who've identified themselves as analytic philosophers, it exhibits that. And we, we want a more diverse, more encompassing philosophical conversation, which involves radically different philosophical views and challenges the big questions of our time of how we should make sense of the world, rather than somehow to assume that those sorts of logical principles are, are really making progress. Okay. So, Barry, you identify the initial project with Frege's project. Do you think that has been successful? 
Yes and no. Um, so I, I think I think Hillary's absolutely right. The the key problem was if you were uh, trying to just define a very special formalized language, special rigorous language that was not like ours, and it was for the use of mathematics, and, and it was logically very precise, then it was doing its job to capture some facts about mathematics. But why assume that that was a model for how language would work beyond the mathematical realm? But the other thing is it didn't even work in its own terms because Frege also had the ambition to try and explain what mathematics was and he tried to reduce it to logic. Certainly tried to reduce arithmetic to logic because he thought logic was certain and if we could at least stop there then we, if we could reduce uh, arithmetic to logic we've, we, we've got a justification for arithmetic. It didn't work. Russell tried it, it didn't work. So in some sense it didn't do the full philosophical job. But, but more interestingly, I think, was analytic philosophy shouldn't be fossilized. You shouldn't think of it as what it was in the 1930s. And there are some people for whom it's still 1930 on their watch, and we know that. But there was a move away from putting language at the center of philosophy and thinking if we analyze language, we'll sort of find our relation to the world and so on. In my time, there was a move to the philosophy of mind being all important. And suddenly we were dealing with mind and we were looking at, again, it was often driven by what was going on in science. Neuroscience is coming up, psychology was developing, and so suddenly philosophers thought we need to understand the mind better. And then language takes a second role because instead of thinking the big job is understanding how language relates to the world, a much more interesting question is how does language relate to thought? And indeed, what we're doing now is using language to go public on what we're thinking. And language is an interface between minds. That's really interesting. It's the way in which minds can make available to each other what they're thinking, where there's no barrier, where we're not having to guess what's going on in someone's head. And understanding kind of language's role, not as this you know, big starting place for metaphysics, but as much more sewn into our activities and much more part of the human situation. I think the, the person who helped us get there, of course, was Wittgenstein, as, as Maria said, because Wittgenstein stopped doing the, the job of tidying up language and said, Look at language and see how it is. There's nothing wrong with it. it. It works as it's doing now, I presume, for all of you, I hope. We don't have to problematize it and worry about it. It's doing just fine. Our difficulty is accepting it as it is. Okay, thank you very much. So um, let me just try and get at the fault lines of the debate there. So has it succeeded in answering its core questions? Maria, you want to say it, um, it depends kind of how you specify the questions, but to certainly to some extent it has. I think, Hilary and Barry, you're both you're in agreement about the failure of the core questions, but you disagree about the value of the methodology, perhaps, or yeah. the approach yeah. to philosophy. Yeah. So you think it can be updated in, um, when looking at different philosophical problematics like the philosophy of mind, and I feel, Hilary, that you're perhaps more suspicious. But if we could move on to the next theme, which tries to take that philosophical question about the value um, and apply it to current uh, debates that are divisive in our culture. I wonder what you have to say about that. So the question is, could rationality and logic be the antidote to the divisive disputes that beset current culture, or is it merely increasing tensions? Barry, could we start with you on yep. that? It would be lovely if it, if it <laughs> helped us solve the disputes and the troubles and the, the polarization that's going on and the, the clashes of culture and so on. It's, it, it's obviously not going to do that, probably not, but my goodness, if we had a little more care for understanding what other people were, were saying on Twitter, e.g., and then thinking, what are the implications of what they're saying? Um, 
are they contradicting what I'm saying or am I contradicting what they're saying or are we talking past each other? There's a lot of interest in, in philosophy of language in the analytic tradition now in very subtle questions about what is lying? If you absolutely believe some falsehood, if you're in the grip of a conspiracy theory, are you lying when you say something which is misinformation going out there? It's difficult to capture. Also, diagnosing disagreement, it's actually quite hard to say when people are disagreeing. They think they're disagreeing, but actually they're using terms slightly differently. They're talking past each other. So, so I do think that a bit more care would help. And you know, we, we have had in the postmodern tradition the idea that you know, there's no such thing as truth or you know, truth is just whoever is believed more or that we don't believe in truth. It's very funny because when people say that in the postmodern tradition, they think that's true. They want you to believe that. And in a way, in a way if we're, we're generous to them, we can see what they want is not to be fooled. They don't want some authoritarian figure telling them this is true or science tells you and you have to believe it. They want to be quizzical. But I still think those cares and concern for truth for consistency, for holding our politicians to better standards and saying, we will not let you get away with any false analogy, any bad argument, any, any equivocation, any false moral equivalence. You need skills to do that. And so I think, I think it can help. It won't do it all by itself. I think it can help. Maria, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I agree, actually. I think it can help, but it's not sufficient. Yeah. Um, and that, that's the kind of divisive dispute I also had in mind, like fake news and the importance of truth. Because, of course, there's, there's a, a connection between rationality, logic, and truth, and like a certain commitment to truth that comes when you're committed to, to logic. One thing that I would want to kind of be careful about, and maybe that brings in Hillary's um, suspiciousness, is that... Um, I would probably prefer a different term, like to, instead of using the term rationality or, or logic, because we are, because meaning is used and we are in a context of a debate on analytic philosophy, maybe I would go for a broader word like logos, like the ancient Greek logos, because that kind of in, it already includes logic and rationality. And I think one of the dangers with logic and rationality in the context of analytic uh, philosophy debate is that perhaps truth can be reduced to propositional truth. And I think there are other kinds of truth or other, other places where truth can find its home that are important. And if we narrow it down to propositional truth, we may miss that. Are there visceral truths? I'm thinking, I'm thinking of truth, truth in the case of practical insight mm. or truth in the case of faith. And I think it is a question like, why, why is propositional truth prioritized? Mm. I think that's an Aristotelian question, mm -hmm. or it's mm -hmm. a question mm -hmm. you can already pose in Aristotle, of mm -hmm. course, like why, why is assertion kind of prioritized? But, and I'm not, I don't have the answer, or I'm not suggesting a different priority. All I'm saying is that sometimes within the narrower versions of analytic philosophy, there's no space for that question. It kind of, it gets assumed that our model for truth should be a proposition like the sky is blue, but that's not all the kinds of propositions we have. And again, of course, the difficulty there is how to say something like that and not sound like a relativist about truth. But that's, that's why philosophical work is so difficult, because you need to like, get to the nitty-gritty of it. And, and the last thing I want to say here is that adding, adding to what Barry said, I think another, another way to, to think about what a commitment to, to logic would entail would be a commitment to drawing conceptual distinctions. I think that's really important. Um, 
So caring about drawing little distinctions between concepts and how we use them. Okay, so we seem to have some agreement over there. Um, Hilary, you use rationality and logic in a way to put those terms into, into question. Do you think they're still useful in, in the case of the culture wars and the divisive disputes that we have? Well, I'm, uh, I think rationality and empiricism are absolutely vital. Um, and uh, there is a contemporary notion that because somehow truth has been questioned or undermined that uh, we can chuck out empiricism and rationality and I think exactly the reverse is the case. But I'd just like to somehow try and get a bigger grip on what's going on in our conversation here. See, I, I, I think I'm not sure that, that, that what has been said so far um, has responded to the notion that um, within the academy uh, uh, of philosophy in particular, there is very little representation of the primary philosophical movement that has affected the world as a whole for the last 50 years. And you have to think, well, why is that? Um, and uh, I think that uh, what, what's going on is that there is, in fact, an overall worldview embedded in a, a good deal of analytic philosophy, which is not made explicit. And it's not made explicit because it's actually very difficult to put together a theory to defend it. And the, that's why I returned to Russell, because at least you knew what he thought. Um, but, you know, I've been, I, I've had debates with you know, m many of the le leading analytic philosophers, and it's very hard to pin down what they think. Um, uh, and, and that's because, uh, the, you know, what is the theory? And I, uh, the, I think the theory is usually uh, uh, at root something, a belief in reality and truth, that they are pursuing it, and that there is a way to get there using a combination of logic and science. And that's not often made explicit, because I said, we all know that there are all sorts of problems with that, but it's still somehow in the background. I'm in favor of um, philosophy being about trying to make a coherent overall story of the world. And in order to do that, you've got to build, a, you've got to have a go at building an overall coherent story. And it's only when you try and build that overall coherent story that you run into all sorts of problems. And you think, well, this bit doesn't work. I, I, as Russell and Wittgenstein did, they tried to build an overall theory. They were looking at language. I don't think we should abandon the problems of language. I've been deeply involved myself in trying to give an account of what is the relationship between language and the world. Because you've got to do that in order to make sense of our thought. But it seemed to me you have to have that out front. You know, we've got to have our big, you know, the framework that we're operating with out front, and then discuss that rather than somehow think that you can just argue over little bits of definition and, and you know, somehow get somewhere. But do we have to do that, Hilary? I mean, I'm, I'm so, so I think it's sort of interesting that, that you liked the, the initial ambition and enthusiasm of the analytic tradition. You found it wanting, you found the problems, but you still hanker after the big vision, the big, you know, let's have set out the framework, let's really think about how thought and language and reality go together. And, and, and you're, you're saying to us that unless we do that, you know, we can't make sense of our thought. I think Wittgenstein and then more contemporary philosophers like John McDowell would say, you're in the grip of a picture, a picture in which you still want to put these things in 
relation to each other. Now you've, I, I know that you've, you've thought about that hard and you've come up with a, a view closure where you're trying to close the gap between a, a world without any sort of determinate way it can be and determinate ways we try to think and how we might close them. But Wittgenstein and, and other analytic philosophers like Nadal would say, look, we've got to stop hankering after that. We will always get into the problems that, that you first identified. It will always fail to deliver. And Wittgenstein tried to tell us we don't need explanations. We should settle for descriptions. You know, the difficulty is to, to, to accept things as they are, to see them as they are, and not to keep trying to look behind them or explain them in terms of something else. I think you want that, and I think Wittgensteinians yep. would say, don't yep. explain, just describe so better. Henry, so I, I think the later Wittgenstein, for those of you who are uninvolved in, in the detail of philosophy, the later Wittgenstein was radic took a radically different view from the early Wittgenstein. The early Wittgenstein was trying to build a realist theory of language. He came to the conclusion it was not possible. He then had a different version, which is you can't make any overall claims about the nature of the world or indeed the relationship between uh, language in the world. And uh, I uh, think that uh, there was, I understand exactly why he's come to that view. I think there's, uh, it, it had a lot going for it. But in fact, I have my own criticism of the later Wittgenstein. I think it's a certain, certain sort of bad faith. The only way we can understand what he's trying to say is to give him an overall view, something like we are lost in language. And uh, that overall view, he can't say, so he just doesn't say it and avoids it. Uh, but look, that, that, that's my internal sort of argument with, with, with that Wittgensteinian move within the analytic tradition. And there are other people. I think Derrida in some ways is engaged in a quite similar situation to uh, Wittgenstein of showing that all meaning can be undermined. You can never get to the bottom of it. And uh, those, they would both, those views were certainly very influential when I was trying to work out what I thought. And, uh, but uh, I, would, I would say that I don't think we can avoid having some sort of overall view, even if it's not possible. Because, of course, I take the view it's not possible to have a correct view of the world. But I think we have to put, f put them forward and then say, well, if we hold it like this, it's got these advantages and these disadvantages, and this is why it's a good way to operate like this. And to have those big conversations, those big philosophical conversations out front, um, but are you, rather than you somehow get lost in the, mm. in the detail and not really talk about them. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure about what I'm, I'm about to ask, but I, where is, was there a suggestion there that maybe analytic philosophy is a realist philosophy? Do you think that? Because I'm not sure. Yep. I think I think there have there have been certain cases of realism, but like mm. you mentioned, McDowell, I wouldn't call it a realist. Realist, but then mm. McDowell, he he also does things with continental philosophy, like with Kant. So, mm. would I don't you know? It it, it takes yep. us back to the the initial question of what are we talking about? But I don't. But maybe there mm. is something in your in your intuition that there is something realist, and that's that's the connection to science. So what would be if 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 you, you think, well, there isn't, because I think there have been surveys done of mm. analytic philosophers in which the vast majority do hold realist views. That's interesting. And they I have, know that. And they right. have the same view. I think it's more than 70% or something, a very large number. So, but um, how, how would you account for the fact that Derrida is not taught in the primary places of philosophy in the English-speaking world, when it's obvious that he's had a massive impact on social sciences and on culture as a whole. A good right. influence? Good. 
Sorry, a good no, influence. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm critical, as I say. I'm, but that isn't the that isn't in a way my point. It's just that no. this is a huge idea, which yeah. came along, changed a whole lot of things, and yeah. and it's not really there in the teaching of philosophy to students in in Britain and North America, and. And I think it's because it challenges the basic notion of what analytic philosophy is about. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's kept out. Mm. So, Maria, you, I know you, you've worked both on Wittgenstein, who is in, and Lacan, who is out, of analytic out. philosophy. <laughs> Maybe you have a view on, on what it takes to sort of get in the canon. What well, you, mean what well, you mean what it takes to bring them together or, or make them like... Con con well, why someone like Lacan or Derrida isn't... Um, a feature on well, because undergraduate uh, because programs. they're like methodologically they're okay. they're just opposites. Right. Uh, um, all, all, all this project of like clarity that we were talking about um, is just is not there. But and 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 the, the, the also Lacan is not a philosopher; he's a psychoanalyst. Okay. So it would be um, it wouldn't be fair to 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 compare um, in in such a kind of direct way. Um, but. I'd, I'd, I would, I just, I would want to be a bit more hopeful. I don't know about Oxford, but I would want to think that in the States we would find some Derrida now. That's what I would want to think. Well, I'm not sure how much progress we made on the actual question I asked, which is how much uh, rationality and logic can help us in the culture wars. But um, in any case, let's focus in our final theme on the future. So. And of course, we can talk about the, the metaphysics, the metaphysical, the, the big picture, if you like. Um, but the key question is, um, in the English-speaking world anyway, and that's something none of us have mentioned really, that um, philosophy, analytic philosophy came from um, Frege, yeah. who didn't speak English as, a, as mm -hmm. his first language in any case, but nevertheless, we associate it with English-speaking philosophy. It's something we could talk about. But will, in the English-speaking world, um, we move away or beyond analytic philosophy, or is it here to stay sort of indefinitely? So I think it, analytic philosophy, as I said, isn't fossilized. It's, it's got dialects. It's also got a history. I mean, it's very funny because it's counter to the thinking of analytic philosophy, which is supposed to be, you know, sort of fixed and eternal by the principles and standards. But as I travel around the world to North America and to other countries which do analytic philosophy, it doesn't look like the analytic philosophy we do. And you think to Brazil and elsewhere and you think, so that's kind of interesting. It's got flavors. It's got dialects. So I, I'm not worried about analytic philosophy continuing. I'm worried if it got to be as rigidified as Hillary says Oxford is. I think Oxford may be changing a bit. You know, it's refreshing. It's got new people in, new projects, new thoughts. And also they've got to get new grants and nobody's just going to say, yes, keep on doing that same old stuff and we'll fund you. So I think there's, a, there's, there's push for change. I think analytic philosophy is changing because it's, it's, it's actually very, very stuck between two things it could be so pure that it just deals with philosophy by itself in isolation from everything else, or because a lot of what was the topic and subject matter of philosophy of language, language, the mind, uh, relations to reality, have been taken over and, and are being pursued by very philosophically minded scientists. Hillary invites them here because they're, they've got philosophical mm -hmm. views. I'm very confident that Philosophers can contribute with scientists to some of the big projects. I'm very interested in the philosophy of mind. I'm very interested in uh, embodied minds. I'm interested in our emotions and our thoughts and, and the ways in which uh, our senses work to provide our experience of the world. I don't want to do philosophy 
in abstraction from that science, why would anybody interested in memory, emotion, perception not want to know what the scientists are saying? At the same time, don't think the science will answer all your philosophical questions. It won't. But if you don't start from the right premises, if you don't start from the right place, you'll be trying to answer questions and get them wrong in a clever way, but wrong. For example, we have many more senses than five. You know, we've got at least 22 or 33. The senses don't work independently of each other. So Aristotle was just wrong about that. And yet we continue to do philosophy as though we got five senses, this is how they work separately. So I want us to update the evidence base, but not forget what the philosophical questions are. So I think science can inform philosophy. It won't answer philosophy questions, but they should work together. There's no way we can do the science of the mind without having also a philosophical cons conception of minds and how they're embodied. So Hilary, is this really what analytic philosophy actually looks like in the future, taken out of the academy into a field? Does this experience in this festival grow out of your way of thinking about moving on from analytic philosophy or changing analytic philosophy? Perhaps you could say something about that if you're happy to. Well, I, I think no doubt the way that the festival is framed reflects some of my outlook. That would be odd if it didn't. Um, and I think that as a, as a festival, we try and be as diverse as possible in the views that are held. And we try and talk about the big topics. And... Um, we invite analytic philosophers who are realists. We invite um, postmodernists who are, are critics. Uh, and occasionally, I have a voice myself with my own line. Uh, but uh, uh, what we are trying to do is get the big questions out and into the public domain where they're discussed in hopefully a uh, positive fashion of trying to understand each other and work out how we might go and to get a bit clearer about the different positions that are being held and maybe come to a view that one has got more strengths than we had thought previously. So I wouldn't want to say that what, what happens is, you, is what analytic philosophy should be. It's obviously got aspects of what I think philosophy should be. But then maybe it's also aspects of what I think life should be. <laughs> so uh, mm. I, I'm not sure I'd... I certainly wouldn't see it as a template for, you know, what, what I think about philosophy is much more to do with what I write about course, philosophy yeah. than what happens here. Could I just push you on um, one a, a question that Maria raised, um, if we've got time, which is this idea that um, you mentioned 70% of analytic philosophers are realists, or according to mm. some survey. Um, but would you say that um, being a realist is a necessary condition of being an analytic philosopher? Or could you be a, an analytic philosopher without being a, a, a realist? Are you an analytic uh, philosopher? Uh, no, I, I think, I, I think um, uh, as has been pointed out, that, you know, some people would say that Wittgenstein was an analytic philosopher in his later version. Um, but in fact, it's also the case that I've heard analytic philosophers to me when I've raised Wittgenstein as a counter to some standard views. Oh, he's not really an analytic philosopher, is the is the reply. So I, uh, you know, you can never get, you can never define your way out of these things. It's mm. not like well, we can work out what analytic philosophy means. It's got sure. these four different things, and that's what it is. And it's not like that. Language is more more uh, 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 ambiguous and and confusing than that. We we use it, and my 
version of it is that we use language to hold the world like that, that it's not telling us how it is, we just hold it like this. And, and um, then we go along with somebody, and if we think, actually, uh, I don't think that works, then, then we, we, we throw it away. But I don't think we, we are able to say how things are ultimately. So in the, in the case of analytic philosophy, people can use the word in all sorts of ways. I mean, who cares about the word? Uh, what, what matters is what we actually end up doing. And I think it's not right that we exclude a whole load of people who have been very influential from our, uh, our, our subject area, which is meant to be about the big topics of, of, of life. And it, we ought to get back to that and put that front and centre of, of what's going on. But Hillary, there was, there was a big debate. I mean, I, I always find it sort of slightly ironic that from the early days, and we've, we've been talking about these things for a long time, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of styled as a realist philosopher. Yeah. I grew up, you know, with anti-realism. And in fact, Oxford yeah. had this big clash between Michael Dummett and, and other people re rejecting Dummett's anti-realism. I was sort of mm -hmm. brought up by Crispin Wright, another anti-realist. Yeah. They saw themselves as coming straight out of the Wittgenstein tradition. Yeah. And realism and anti-realism in the, in the 80s in Oxford was a, you know, a big kind of, kind of pinch point. And, and do they both count for you as doing the same wrong thing in the wrong way? Or are the anti-realists at least kind of fighting back against the idea that we could settle questions about the relationship between language and reality leaving us out of the picture, which well, anti-realists deny? Yeah. So, well, I, I think I would describe myself as a non-realist, and mm -hmm. I would say the Lake of Wittgenstein yeah. was a non-realist right. rather than an anti-realist. Right. And I think, indeed, the word anti-realist is somehow part of that realist language right. of thinking that language either describes the world or yeah. it doesn't, yeah. or mathematics actually either does or it doesn't. While um, there's obviously a self-referential problem with that because yeah. you're, you're hooked into... I, I, you can't say that it doesn't, because then what do you mean by saying that it doesn't? So, so I think non-realists, who do we include Wittgenstein and Derrida and the sort of philosophical position that I, I, I take up, um, are trying to find an alternative to that sort of realist mm. conversation, mm. Um, rather than the mm. realist, anti-realist, but it's mm. the way that it was portrayed mm. by, by Dummett and yeah. all of that. Thank stuff. you very much. Um, Maria, what do you think about this? Do you think the English-speaking world will move on from analytic philosophy? Well, I've, as I tried to say, I, I think it's kind of moving on already. But right. I think there's something we haven't examined, and it relates to the question, mm -hmm. um, which is whether what Hillary describes as like, you know, that the, the Derrida problem, uh, whether it has to do not with something that we call analytic philosophy versus continental philosophy, given that there is good work happening, mainly maybe in the States, although maybe that's unfair, um, like Magdalene mentioned, Brandom and Pippin uh, on on this on bridging, yeah. but whether whether it is because of the problems of the university discourse today, mm. and whether it is it also reflects something about today's zeitgeist, like there's something about the way we the way we understand the world today, like in in ordinary ways that I think comes from. The, the very central role that science and technology has in our lives. Think about how we, we think about ourselves so often in AI terms, mm -hmm. we don't even know we're doing it. And whether, uh, whether a lot of that, uh, we, we, we like to think of philosophy as something that is kind of cut off from the, the zeitgeist, but whether a lot of that comes from the problems and the dangers that may come um, with that central role that that, that has, rather than yeah. 
a, a problem that is internal to philosophy itself. So it just remains for me to thank you for coming and to thank our speakers. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Thank you.